Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, this is Marlene Schwartz, and I am the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and I am delighted today to welcome our guest, Dr. Park Wilde. He is a food economist at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University, where he does research that looks specifically at food security, hunger measurement, the economics of the food assistance programs, and federal dietary guidance. And I also want to mention that um, Park has a blog at usfoodpolicy.com and a recent book titled Food Policy in the United States, An Introduction. So thanks for coming down. Yes, my pleasure. So one of the things I was hoping that we could start off with is just sort of the basics of the SNAP program. Could you just explain what SNAP stands for, what exactly the program is? So the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps, is the federal government's biggest anti-hunger program. And it's an important part of the social safety net more broadly, because in the United States, much of our social safety net is in-kind benefits rather than cash benefits. And so SNAP is a centerpiece of that. So I know that there's been a lot of information in the news recently about cuts to the SNAP program, a lot of debate in Washington. What are the concerns about the SNAP program? So the SNAP program grew substantially as at, during the financial crisis and the Great Recession, and the benefits had been increased on a temporary basis for a period. And that increase, that temporary increase, was ended in November. And then when the Farm Bill passed in January, Congress passed further cuts. And so this hasn't necessarily been an easy time for program supporters. So one of the things that um, I think has been in the news has been a question of how people are spending the benefits. And I know there have been ideas floated about different ways to try to, I guess, influence the individuals participating in SNAP to have a healthier diet. So can you talk about what some of those have been? That's right. There's a lot of lively discussion about it. In fact, even some debate and dissension on this matter. The challenge is to balance the goals of the program to both protect against food insecurity and hunger on the one hand and to promote good nutrition without being unnecessarily paternalistic or putting restrictions on the choices of low-income Americans that we wouldn't tolerate on the choices of Americans at large. Some of the proposals have been um, New York City proposed to restrict what Foods could be purchased with SNAP benefits so that sugar-sweetened beverages wouldn't be allowed anymore. That proposal wasn't approved. What's an easier sell politically is perhaps subsidizing comparatively healthy items such as fruits and vegetables. I've been involved in a pilot study in Hamden County, Massachusetts called the Healthy Incentives Pilot, or HIP, and interim results from that show that the participants in this incentive program have slightly higher fruit and vegetable intake than a control group does. So how exactly did the Healthy Incentive Program work? Well, um, right through the EBT card, which is like a debit card that SNAP participants can use in supermarkets and other food retailers to buy their food, um, if they use that card to purchase eligible, what's called targeted fruits and vegetables, they had a bonus of 30% of the value that they spent added back to their SNAP card. Wow. So they could, so they would buy the fruits and vegetables, and then 30% of that amount they would get 
additional money, essentially. That's right. It's almost equivalent to a 30% price discount from the consumer's perspective. So were there any sort of specific changes you saw in people's purchasing, any particular fruits or vegetables that they seemed to purchase differently if they were using this benefit? Right. So the benefit was only targeted at um, fresh, canned, or frozen fruits and vegetables, but it excluded white potatoes and 100% fruit juice and fruits and vegetables that had added sugar or added salt. And not to anybody's surprise, the goods that they consumed more of largely were the ones that were targeted. Um, There's an exception or two, but basically all types of fruits and vegetables saw increases, small increases for the participants in this incentive program. So it sounds like overall the program did what it was designed to do, although maybe the increases weren't as big as you might have wanted, but there was still a significant increase. That's correct. In in a sense, the, the the increase was small. The interim results, which are all that's available published so far, final results are coming out later this year. The interim results showed 0.2 cup equivalents increase of fruits and vegetables for the participants in the incentive. And in one sense, that's pretty small. You know, zero, uh, a fifth of a cup equivalent per day is a fairly small amount. But in another sense, that was a 25% increase because the amount of fruits and vegetables that people consume isn't always very high just on the baseline. Right. And I think, too, you know, given that there's such a low rate of consumption to begin with, a small but consistent over time, you know, for each person um, increase like that could really add up. That's correct. So that's interesting. So um, you mentioned the New York City proposal. I, I remember when that happened. And one of the things that was interesting about that was that people who usually advocates that are usually working together on the same team had really different perspectives on on whether or not that was a good idea. What what stands out to you as you think back on the discussions at that time? Well, as you know, the anti-hunger advocates had concerns about this proposal, that it was unnecessarily paternalistic, that it essentially reflected a sense of maybe middle-class privilege to tell low-income people what they should be consuming. And on the other hand, public health nutrition folks felt quite strongly that sugar-sweetened beverages is one of the leading food choice decisions of the day, and some of them are actually supporting policies that affect middle-income and upper-income people as well, and that this just seemed a sensible part of it. I think the way these two constituencies could get along better over some of these policy proposals are to agree on a pilot that reflects both anti-hunger and public health nutrition goals. And ways you could do that um, include incorporating both um, anti-hunger outcomes and beverage consumption outcomes together as the goals of the pilot. I think there's some opportunities to have the next round of this debate be a little less tense than the last round. Well, that would that would be nice. Um, you know, one uh, concern that I remember was brought up was this idea of stigma. And there was an image 
that, you know, was described of, you know, your grandmother who's on Snap in the grocery store line trying to buy her, you know, beverages and then being told by the 16-year-old cashier, no, you're not allowed to buy soda with this and and sort of increasing the stigma and the embarrassment. Um, But I thought you raised a really interesting point earlier about it potentially having the opposite effect. Can you explain more about that? Right. This concern about stigma is one I take seriously, because if the policy proposals that we make to propose good to support good nutrition end up having the effect of letting people lose some of their access to program benefits that are needed to protect against hunger, everybody agrees that would be a terrible outcome. On the other hand, I think that the stigma question cuts both ways. To the extent that the SNAP program is identified in everybody's mind with healthy eating, I think that's not just something that conservative critics of the program would support, but it's something that program advocates might see some appeal in, and I think even program participants themselves. One of the things I'd like to see more of in public health-oriented nutrition research is asking SNAP participants themselves what their view of the policy innovations are. It it remains to be seen, but it wouldn't surprise me to find that SNAP participants actually liked the idea of having SNAP benefits strongly oriented towards good nutrition. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me. First of all, we haven't done a very good job doing research with the individuals who are using the benefits. So I think that's a really important message is, you know, as researchers to think about how can we, you know, tap into their voices and hear what they have to say. Um, Anecdotally, I had heard from some individuals who participated in SNAP that they actually thought it would be fine for it not to cover sugar-sweetened beverages, Um, similar to some research I did with people who go to food banks who also said, you know, soda was pretty much at the bottom of their list of what they wanted to find at a food bank. So I think that's that's really interesting. And, And I think this idea of really trying to improve the image of SNAP so that people who see who you know see someone using SNAP know that it's this is what you use to buy healthy food for your family could really I think improve sort of the overall um, conversation around the program. So if you if you could design a, a pilot study to test out some of these options, what what would you like to do if if you were in charge? Well, some of the goals I already mentioned include having both public health nutrition and food security goals as part of the explicit pilot goals. It includes uh, making sure that you ask people about their experience of stigma so that you know to avoid that problem if it turns out it arises. But another thing that would be important is to have the scale of the pilot be genuinely pilot scale rather than full rollout. Perhaps one of the reasons why USDA was concerned about the New York City proposal is that New York City is a big place. It's a major metropolis, and perhaps it didn't quite count as a pilot. Right. So are there any other pilots planned for this county in Massachusetts where you've been working? So in the Massachusetts study for this healthy incentives pilot, it was a one-time study, but it wouldn't surprise me to see USDA supporting other pilots in the future down the road. Currently, there's pilots in the Farm Bill, the legislation that reauthorizes food and nutrition programs, um, to explore a couple things, including improving work incentives through the SNAP program and also fruit and vegetable purchases through 
farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Well, before we finish up, I just want to ask you a little bit about the book that you wrote, which it sounds like was really um, sort of evolved from the course that you teach at Tufts. Um, Can you just give an overview of what sorts of things you cover in the book? Well, the book is written for people interested in the type of topics that we've been discussing here, including public health, nutrition, people who've developed an interest in food policy. It covers everything about the food system from agricultural policy to food manufacturers, food retailers, and then nutrition policy, more traditional nutrition policy topics such as dietary guidelines, food labeling, and nutrition assistance programs. But I think that making some of this material, which is sometimes held close to the chest by food and agricultural economists, available to people who care about other public interest goals might have the effect of democratizing some of this conversation, giving other people input that they wouldn't otherwise have had on topics that range all the way from how should antitrust enforcement and food manufacturing work to how should farm subsidies work. I mean, that's one of the sort of amazing things about this field is there are so many different disciplines and areas of expertise that are involved, you know, as you sort of go throughout the entire food system. So, you know, even someone like me who studies uh, certain segments of the food system, I'm sure I would learn a lot um, from looking at this book. Well, thank you so much for coming down to New Haven on the train and visiting with us today. Um, Again, this is uh, Dr. Park Wilde, who was here uh, from Tufts University. And I'm Marlene Schwartz from the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity. You can listen to other podcasts at our website, www.yaleredcenter.org. Thank you. Thanks for having me visit.